Good morning and welcome to Legal Defense with Kirk and John. I'm Kirk O'Bare. Uh, I wanted to start right off with um, acknowledging and discussing the very tragic events that occurred in Buffalo, New York uh, this past weekend. And uh, some of you may know this, but I was, uh, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, went to high school there, went to law school there, and of course, very familiar with the city itself. And a lot of uh, friends and relatives of mine have been greatly affected by uh, the mass shooting that occurred at the Topps Friendly Market uh, last weekend. And, you know, I know that uh, this has happened a lot in a lot of locations. Um, and not to say that Buffalo is a city that is free from gun violence. It certainly isn't. It's uh, like most metropolitan areas. It has its fair share of violent crime that occurs, including homicides. Um, for a city its size, however, it's not as, um, you know, not as high on the scale as places like Milwaukee, Wisconsin, for some reason. But it, it really brings to home uh, the fact that this occurred someplace within a few miles of where I grew up and just the circumstances that led up to this caused me to reflect further as I always do on you know how and why do things like this happen and thinking hard about it I, I can only say that when uh, a tragedy such as this happens which happens again and again there is a tendency for people to try and identify a cause, a singular uh, point of data, data a datum, <laughs> that uh, explains why this happened and to try and fix that, that one thing. And another example of this struggle to identify what could have gone differently is the fairly recent uh, parade in Waukesha where several people were killed by a man that had been released on what some say is a very low cash bond um, for another pending case. And the reason I point this out is because there's been a wave of suggestions as to how that could have been prevented by making sure that that individual who drove into the, the parade could have been stopped from doing so if he had remained in custody on another case. So you see my point here that that seems to be an easy, identifiable cause and effect type solution to that particular problem. So one might say with this Buffalo situation that an easy solution would have been to somehow have prevented this 18-year-old kid from being able to come into possession of an assault rifle. Well, it's obviously much more complicated than that. And we have to resist the impulse to say, well, okay, that's why that thing happened. So let's just change that one thing. Well, first of all, that, that's very difficult to do in that context. It, and it's coming out you know, through the investigation that this young man uh, 
probably should not have legally been able to possess this firearm, but that's not clear because the myriad of legal issues that are involved with all this in terms of who can or who can't possess a firearm and who can buy it at a gun shop and so forth really are not the point. Uh, the point here is that this person, a person who's dead set on committing a massacre and presumably doesn't care about the consequences to himself or herself, would have found a way to get his hands on an AR-15 or whatever uh, type of assault weapon he wanted, legally or illegally. It's not hard to do at all. Not at all. Um, so to say that gun regulation needs to take care of this problem is hitting short of the mark. It's also short of the mark to say, well, obviously, and we would be dismissing this as less significant than it is if we were to just say, oh, he's just a crazy racist. So, yeah, you know, throw the book at him and then let it serve as an example that you can't do this kind of thing. Yeah, kind of. But that's not, again, it doesn't go to identifying the root problem. And that's the real challenge when we try to incorporate all of our uh, freedoms that we cherish in this country, including uh, the right to think and believe whatever you want in your head and have opinions about things, whether they're abhorrent or you know, pro-society, anti-society, whatever. Well, we don't regulate people's thoughts or opinions, and we shouldn't. But when it transforms into violence against innocent people. Um, and for us to say that, well, we know why, let's just fix it, is really not giving the issue uh, its fair consideration. So there's no easy answer to these types of questions. And, you know, we try to do the best that we can in dealing with the regulation of behavior in our culture and in our society, while at the same time um, permitting people to go about their way freely, assuming it doesn't interfere with other people's safety or their lives. Um, but think about it. You know, let's just, again, use this kid, 18-year-old guy who drives to uh, the Tops Friendly Market, dead set on uh, massacring as many black people as he can um again with the presumption that he isn't going to make it out of there alive what kinds of things uh, contribute to that and it, it's a it's a long and complicated question but um we can start with okay maybe there was something wrong with this guy that uh mentally speaking he didn't uh you know, have correct or proper treatment or didn't have the support of his parents or any reason to lead a long, productive life respecting the rights of others, but instead decided to give all of that up in order to make some kind of statement, to be famous, to be, to identify himself with a group of people that uh, insist on exerting violence against others. Does it come from hatred? Does it come from being flat out crazy? Does it come from a suicidal uh, 
tendency that he had to go out with a bang. You see, um, we'd have to go back to not only the things leading up to that event that may have affected this individual, but, you know, what circumstances were, and what sorts of things um, in this person's life led to this tragic consequence? And, of course, that's a very complicated question. So in identifying how and why something like this happens, you know, we, we have to be vigilant in exploring not just these events, but, but all of them that lead to this type of violence. And one thing we do know is that uh, having a reactive approach that uh, responding to individual things as they crop up is a never-ending cycle because that alone does nothing to curb crime or to make us feel safer in our communities uh, if you just respond one at a time to each one of these things that happen. So the real challenge is what is wrong with our society where these things do keep happening? Because every time we make a tougher law, every time we have some sort of you know reactive stance that that is in response to a, a tragic event you know that it falls short because these things keep happening and they're not slowing down it's not like uh you know there's a decrease in the incidence of these types of things occurring they do keep occurring so i was in trial all all this week earlier this week uh very long hard uh, laborious trial and I know for a fact that while myself and the prosecutor and the judge and the witnesses and the jury were involved in that process, somebody somewhere else in the county of Sheboygan was committing some sort of crime. And we were occupied dealing with that the particular trial situation. And stuff just keeps happening over and over again. Um, no matter how many times we have people that run on a candidate ticket that say they're going to fix the problem by being tougher on crime, well, we know that isn't the answer because a lot of people have said that and a lot of people have been elected on that position and it just doesn't seem to help. Well, we're going to take a break and we'll be back right after these messages. So it probably won't surprise you to hear that when I talk about gun control, I'm probably also going to reference other attempts to eradicate problems in our society that haven't worked. And the reason I say that is because the suggestion that occasionally arises that we just ban all guns of all types uh, in this country would solve the problem. Well, remember, we tried something like that called prohibition that didn't work at all. We tried something else called the war on drugs and that didn't work at all. And the point being that unless there is some way to make a clean sweep and I don't know how you do that, of uh, the potential for identifying the source and location of every gun in this country, which is impossible, that's kind of a, you know, a useless argument, because let's just say that did happen. All of a sudden, you know, there is no right to possess any firearms anywhere. You know, they're still going to be there. And in spite of increasing regulation, we don't see that it's had any, any real effect at all. I mean, look at it just like um, prohibition. You know, the, it's illegal to, it was illegal to um, sell 
um, and in many cases possess certain types of intoxicating liquors for a period of time. But it, it really didn't slow the actual consumption of alcohol, and there's an argument that it actually increased the um, amount of alcohol that was being consumed. And after about a 10-year period, our country gave up and said, well, never mind. Um, you know, we need to, it's, it's a problem that can't be addressed by simply declaring something to be contraband. And that would be absolutely true if this, if we were talking about eradicating all weapons. But I think it is useful to look at how other countries have dealt with this issue, but acknowledging the fact that we have, you know, an enhanced right to possession of firearms in this country due to our constitution that other countries don't have. But, um... Why is it, for example, that in Japan, where you know they certainly have no less of a complicated um, urban society situation than we do, uh, the number of firearm deaths is minimal. I mean, absolutely minimal every year, whereas we have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of gun-related homicides in our country. And other countries, you know, we always talk about places like Norway, Iceland, Sweden, Finland, etc., where firearms are just not, you know, part of the culture the same way that they are here. And I'm not suggesting that we need to reinvent our culture because that's something that can't be done. But I'm talking about avoiding the knee-jerk reaction to say, okay, this thing happened and there is an answer that is like connecting the dots A to B. Um, but I do have ideas about where and how this can be addressed, these types of issues. And it all starts with the, the fact that we, again, tend to have a more of a reactive system than a proactive system. Now, we've made great strides in the criminal justice arena over the years to provide people with uh, resources and help that they might need, interventions when someone is willing to uh, be intervened upon, <laughs> as it were. Um, and, and that's all good, but we got to go back further in terms of what is it about our society where people end up in a situation where they're willing to basically you know, forfeit their own lives in the interest of making headlines, which is... Number one, completely antisocial behavior. Number two, suicidal. Number three, um, not logical. Okay. So it, it'll be interesting as we peel back the layers on this to see where and how this person became radicalized and what was it that made it so this person was in a position where those are the conscious decisions that were made. Yes, of course we need to go through the justice process and I would hazard a guess that he will be convicted of many serious crimes. I mean, he killed 10 people. So, um, and there doesn't seem to be any dispute about that, but of course we have to go through the process to see, and yes, this person will suffer those consequences through the legal system. But you know, while that's all playing itself out, it's not the only case in the country where something like that's happened. And it's not the only person who ends up doing something horrible um, due to a million different uh, 
influences and issues and problems and etc. So generalizing, which is always dangerous to do, but generalizing here, someone that doesn't have an adequate um, support system, whether it be mental health, physical health, economic stability, uh, proper parental guidance and influence, the school system, the manner in which we hope to instill um, an appreciation for the opportunities that life in this country offers. Uh, somehow, when all those things don't connect properly, we end up with someone who doesn't care, simply doesn't care about his life or anybody else's life. And on a notion that we all find offensive, uh, you know, takes it out against a race of people, which is just disgusting. But again, just to focus on locking this guy up or who knows, maybe even the death penalty if the uh, federal charges warrant that, um, it doesn't, doesn't solve the problem. It, it gives us that we deal with that particular case, that particular issue, but we haven't focused on why? Why on earth would this have happened? You know, um, we're in an era where, you know, going back to the Columbine case, where, and that wasn't the first time there was a mass shooting, of course, in our country, but it was kind of a watershed moment in the sense that the copycat crimes that followed from that and the people that, um, due to whatever influences in their lives, are are pushing them in that direction, um, something has taken hold of those those thoughts, and it's permeated our society. And people are dying all the time because of these issues that arise. Um, we're you know let me just draw another analogy to another set of problems that's going on. You know that same weekend if it were last uh last friday you know we saw all these shootings in the uh deer district area of milwaukee and we're peeling back the layers to find out how that happened and why and you know that's still kind of an evolving thing but um <laughs> it would appear that it's very very complicated now if it was just a bunch of kids with guns that were shooting each other for the heck of it why were they doing that and why what was the um reasoning behind uh being in such a reckless and dangerous state of mind that one would uh enter into that type of conflict and potentially ruin a number of people's lives uh hard to say hard to say and, you know, we're going to hear prosecutions that flow from that situation and we'll have trials, we'll have some convictions, we'll have some harsh words from judges and all of that. But again, it's just going to deal with that one situation and, and how, how do we address the bigger picture? Well, I'll tell you one thing is that when society starts to break down to the point where people don't have an incentive to lead a pro-social, productive, you know, honest lifestyle. It's usually because there's, a, there's been a trend that's been growing that people don't have faith 
in the system. They don't have faith in the law. They don't have an incentive to uh, abide by the law because, again, generalizing here, uh, the choices that one makes are in a much more reckless and unstable type of decision-making environment. And again, that comes down to like desperation or just a lack of appropriate community resources to uh, lead one to believe that the better way to go is to have a steady job, you know, have a meaningful relationship, have children, engage in, have friends, um, live your life to the fullest without viewing your life as something which is take it or leave it, disposable, who cares, because it's pretty bad. And uh, there's no reason to have faith that you'll succeed in other areas. Um, you know, that irrationality where uh, viewing oneself as a criminal just for the sake of feeling like and acting like a criminal. Well, it tends to be a pervasive thought in many parts of our society. We'll be right back after these messages. Most of you know that I was... Uh, a JAG in the Air Force, um, in the Judge Advocate General's Corps. They changed the name. It used to be the Judge Advocate General's Department, JAG Department. Now it's JAG Corps because I don't know why, but in the Army and in the Navy and Marines, they called it JAG Corps. And for years and years, the Air Force was the department, but they changed it to Corps. So I don't know, maybe just to make it more uniform. I don't know. But, you know, a lot of this um, cause and effect type discussion, it's useful, I think, to look at how the military handles um, the regulation of quote-unquote military society. Now, of course, it's a different set of standards. You hear that all the time, that, you know, there is a higher expectation of how one conducts him or herself when they're in the uniform services. Yes, I completely understand that. But you see, the, the military has experimented over the years with various forms of, for lack of a better term, promoting good behavior. One might also call it controlling bad behavior, but promoting good behavior. And that's the side of it that I think is particularly effective within the military culture. Yes, it's true that um, you will suffer harsher consequences for much more minor conduct than we do in the general civilian world. But there's a great deal of emphasis in the military to incorporate any individual uh, sailor, soldier, airman into a sense of belonging, that one is part of uh, a bigger mission. A person has an incentive to contribute positively in every way he or she can. Um, to the utmost of their ability. And if, if they don't hack it, then yeah, there are consequences. But you see what I'm saying here is that there, there's a great deal of effort to reward people for being pro-social. Not just promotions within your ranks, but also providing a sense of unity, um, uh, a common belonging, a bond. And I know that as a veteran that there is a common bond with, uh, with other veterans, that we all share something in common. We've all been through something that is part of our makeup. And, and it's something that we continue to um, be part of our souls. 
so that connection, that sense of belonging, that we call it good order, morale, and discipline, which morale is important, the morale of the troops. So some of the things the military does, you know, to make sure that people have their basic needs covered, food, shelter, um, a, 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 an environment to work in where one can reach their maximum potential and will see direct rewards and benefits from doing so. Uh, if you're posted at a military base, you're provided with access to uh, going to the gym, health care, um, counseling services, uh, a whole a whole myriad of things that are put in place to make sure that people have their basic needs of life covered so they can focus on um, being pro-social positive contributors to that particular society. And it, it works fairly well. Not to say that the military doesn't have its own fair share of problems. It certainly does. And there are times when, because of the way that the rank structure and command authority and things like that ha can have a natural and sometimes uncontrollable influence on people's behavior, where people can end up taking advantage of others due to their rank or their superiority and position. Yes, those things happen. But by and large, there is a, a much, much, much lesser incidence of violent crime, um, mental health problems that go unresolved, substance abuse problems that go unaddressed. It, 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 it's a lot less. I mean, it still exists, but it's a lot less. And, and I think that I'm biased, of course, because I loved being in the military, but um, I think we can learn from how we have an emphasis. Now, of course, it's a much more <laughs> confined and controlled subset of people. And yes, it's true that in order to even be eligible for military service, you can't have certain, well, most crimes on your record. Um, you can't have, you can't walk into the situation with a, an existing mental health instability. True. Um, so there's some screening that happens, and I'm not suggesting that there's anything that could be done about that in general society. But in general, the, the fact that people within the military ranks uh, can count on those opportunities to excel being presented to them so that they can, with all of those tools, um, make the most out of their life because they have that support, they have that structure, they have the things that they can count on that they know are not going to go away. You know, the basic necessities will be provided for. You're not going to go hungry. You're going to have a roof over your head. You're going to have things to look forward to in life. You're going to have co-workers who, whom you uh, value your relationship with for that common purpose. You know, it, it, I think it works very well. So how do we make that analogy to our society in general? Obviously, we can't do things the same way that the military can, but there's, there are elements of it that I think we can uh, learn from. And part of that, of course, is that sense that one has their basic needs provided for and they are free to. It frees up those um, conflicts or the, the daily, how am I going to pay my bills? Uh, how am I going to put food on the table? How am I going to make my mom and dad proud of me situation? Um, we need to look at what's missing in, in a lot of portions of our society where those things are lacking or don't exist. 
you know, and I know it's a little unfair to bring the mom and dad situation into it because a lot of people don't either don't have a mom and dad that they can count on or a mom or a dad or anybody or any kind of um, source of guidance and, I guess, leadership in those types of positions. And, of course, we can't count on every single mom and dad to be good moms and dads. That's not that's not something that we can control, right? But um, we know that due to economic circumstances, due to, you know, branding somebody with the shame of having a felony conviction for something or limiting someone's opportunities later in life, we're, we're, we're pushing them down. You know, there's a lot of ways that someone can end up getting in trouble for something, even if it's just one time. And then the stamp of disapproval that our society puts on that person limits their ability to engage in pro-social and positive things in the future particularly employment opportunities, educational opportunities, etc. You know, one of the worst laws, I think, that we have in this country that goes way back many years is when someone is dependent upon um, federal funding in the form of a Pell Grant or otherwise um, hoping to have their educational opportunities either funded or assisted by the government, one can become ineligible for those benefits if they have a substance abuse conviction on their record. So think about that. Someone, and we're talking about college, okay? So almost by definition, when someone is thinking about their opportunities for college, they're going to tend to be a younger person, not universally, but let's just say at that point in life when one is hoping to have graduated from high school and to have those educational opportunities ahead of them. Because we tell our kids, you can be anything. You can be an astronaut. You can be president. You can be any anything. And if it seems like that's a lie because those things are not actually within every person's reach, which is also the truth, you know, we're just putting people in a situation where they're disappointed with um, the, the help, the, the support that, and people view it as unfair. And someone would say, well, I got caught with a joint, you know, uh, when I was 17. That made me ineligible to get a loan to go to college. So forget that. I'm going to have to look at other stuff. Not to say that college is the answer. I'm just using this as an example. But the logic behind those types of laws, again, it goes back to this faulty notion of deterrence. That the, the idea behind denying... Um, access to federal loans and Pell Grants uh, for college if someone has a substance abuse, you know, a controlled substance conviction on their record was supposed to be to deter people from doing that. And yeah, I'm sure it worked on some people, but it's just also the sort of thing that once it happens and we have our 17-year-old or 18-year-old that was going to go to college and now suddenly can't, um, what do you what do you substitute that with? Why do we have that law? That it, it, because it really does not have effect. Now, I, I will temper that with saying that the enforcement of that law, which is still on the books, um, has decreased dramatically over the years. Um, but it's still something that can present a problem. We've worked in ways where one can quote unquote rehabilitate themselves from that original conviction and still find eligibility, but it's a complicated process and it's a hurdle. 
We got to take a break. We'll be right back. I just want to comment briefly on something else that hit the news earlier this week that, frankly, I find confusing. I'm not, I, I need to dig into it a little bit more, but you've probably heard about these three students that are under, um, you know, an equal rights violations uh, at a college campus for using the wrong pronouns for somebody. And it was a person that preferred to be referred to as they or them instead of a he or a she or him or her. And again, the, the, the actual events are a little bit uh, unclear to me because it's a process that has to play itself out. But at least what's been hitting the news is that um, there are these three students that either intentionally or mistakenly uh, did not use the right pronouns in referring to somebody. Um, okay. Well, I'm sure that the reason this is gathering so much attention is because that seems uh, like an overreaction or maybe there's maybe there's more to the story. I don't really know. But what I can say is that when these types of things happen and, you know, I get it that uh, there has to be um, respect for how people want to self-identify and that's fine, but, it, you know... I, I wouldn't have thought that that's something that can result in um, school disciplinary action because somebody either intentionally or negligently didn't say the right word. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I got to look into this and see if there's more to the story. But that on its face seems off. It just seems like, OK, wait a minute. Um, what? <laughs> you, know, you know, you can have that type of thing where you say, let's, you know, encourage people to address each other with their personal preference for their their pronouns and it can be based on one's gender identity or or not you know or maybe just to avoid the whole issue one would prefer to be a they or a them but that's something that it should be something that we all come to this issue of our own free will and and end up deciding to support that general notion rather than being disciplined into doing so. And I, I was not aware that there is some rule in society that one has to be um, precise on that issue. And if it was something that was done to deliberately, you know, make someone feel uncomfortable, okay, maybe, but we need to look into those circumstances. But this seems like on its face something that is probably not good for the promotion of good good behavior uh, on everyone's part because it'll it's being used as an example of extremism uh, in the application of you know some kind of woke consciousness or whatever that's at least what I'm hearing so before we judge something without knowing the facts let's see what we can find out about the facts and we'll have a further discussion on that as uh, time comes. So um, lots of other things going on in the world and in our community, finally facing some decent weather. You'll start hearing from our law enforcement agencies that it's time to think about regular summer activities and whether or not they involve alcohol and whether one is going to drink and drive and so forth. And 
having been exposed to the, the world of criminal law enforcement for about three decades of my life now, um, it's interesting me interesting to me to point out that we go in these cycles and we'll you know we're going to hear announcements hey memorial day is coming up don't drink and drive okay we all know not to drink and drive right but it's something that we <laughs> know you shouldn't do yet it happens all the time we all know that when someone has a conviction or two or three in the past there should be a very strong incentive for them not to drink and drive yet it happens and they do and we all know that this is an issue that uh, generally does not stem from someone's desire to engage in criminal behavior but rather it's something where somebody is exercising not good judgment uh, particularly as it relates to the decision to get behind the wheel after having a few drinks. I've talked about this before, and I had a trial a few weeks ago on a drunk driving issue. And I always like to talk to the jury about their views on this. And I do get some interesting answers, um, because one of the problems that we have, and again, I'll go back to what I started with. I don't know what the answer is or what the solution is. But we have this very vague line in the sand. We don't know where it is for each individual person, but there's a certain amount to drink that would convert someone from engaging in perfectly legal activity to engaging in potentially criminal activity because they've had one drink too many. And we expect people to have the good judgment to know when that process occurs, but we don't want them to drive because they don't have the good judgment to actually drive, right? So it's kind of a paradox in that sense. And you know, again, this was an experience that I've had in the past when I talked to jurors during the jury selection process. There are people, and, and I think this is an interesting point, who believe that our current laws really do a disservice to the public because we're sending the message that you can drink and drive, you just can't drink too much. And the feedback I sometimes get is that, you know, that can be confusing it almost promotes a situation where one can have the intention of only having a few, but then they have that one more and they've crossed the line and they don't even realize it. And I ask the question, does anybody here believe that we'd be better served if our law said you can't have any alcohol whatsoever in your system if you're going to get behind the wheel? And when I ask that question, I usually get several hands that are raised and we talk about it more. And, you know, to be honest, I, I kind of feel like, based on the philosophy of how the law is supposed to work, that might be a better functioning law, honestly. Because one can better regulate their behavior in a situation where they are, um, before they start drinking anything, where we want that, that's when we want them to exercise the good judgment, right? Isn't, isn't that how you don't end up in a situation where you've had too much to drink? Is that you know, if you're drinking, you're not going to drive. And those cha situations change. But also, hopefully, we want to encourage people that if they know they're going somewhere, and that's the priority, to get from point A to point B, don't drink anything. That's, you know, you can make that decision at the beginning of the process. And that would be a very clear law that you know what the law is and you know 
that the line is at zero. You can have nothing in your system before the, the day's events play out or the evening's events play out or whatever. And if you're going to be drinking, you have to you have to make solid plans for how you're going to get home that don't include you driving. I mean, that's at the beginning of the process when you are not impaired by anything and you decide what you're going to do going forward. That would be a clear law. That would be something where if we knew zero tolerance is the standard, it would be easier for people to follow the law. And that's a really good point. And there's nothing invalid about that point. It actually makes a lot of sense to me. So the reason I like to talk about that during jury selection in an OWI trial is that that isn't our law. That we go ahead and say to people, yeah, you can drink and then you can drive, just not too much. And then it's an after-the-fact scenario where someone's breath or blood is measured. And then we say, oh, guess what? Yeah, it was too much. You know, you didn't know, but now we know. So too bad for you. Um, when in fact, we we have this standard that says, go ahead and drink, go ahead and drive, but guess. We want you to guess where there is or isn't too much there. And guesswork is, <laughs> especially in those circumstances. I mean, I do see it all the time where someone said, hey, I always have a three drink rule. I followed that three drink rule and somehow, I don't know, I ended up with too much alcohol in my system. I didn't even realize it. Yeah, well, the legal limit being 0.08, I'll tell you that the vast majority of people at a 0.08 or 0.09 or a 0.10 will not believe that they are impaired by alcohol. They simply will not have that self-awareness. As we get to higher levels, it, it becomes obvious, but also the judgment gets worse. So, you know, we're kind of promoting this, this system whereby the errors in judgment that occur, we're penalizing people for having bad judgment by really encouraging them to be in a situation where that judgment can go wrong. So, I mean, it kind of makes a lot of sense. I don't know if that's something that we'll see. It's That's not the law anywhere in the country. We don't have a zero tolerance law at all, you know, anywhere. We do have these limits. Um, so it's something that we're constantly dealing with. Well, hey, that's all the time we have for this week. Hope you've enjoyed the show. Please tune in next week as you can every week right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL. This has been Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Hopefully we'll get We'll round John up for next week, and we'll see you then. Have a great weekend.